It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Now more than ever, you need a laptop that can be as adaptable as you are. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Finally, a premium laptop at an affordable price. Starting at just $549, its light, thin design, vibrant touchscreen, powerful processor, and built-in HD camera and mic turns any room in your home into a classroom, office, or study hall. Available in three amazing colors the whole family will love. Visit surface.com slash laptop go for more details. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. That's, that was amazing. I don't know if I've ever seen um, a sequence like that from from one guy. Although you know the whole team was was defending well, and we were we covered up shooters and we switched well. But you know those two plays ended up with one on one plays against Draymond. He blocks both shots off of the other guy's uh, bodies, and then uh, closed out on Millsap on the final three with a few seconds left. Just an incredible defensive sequence. Um, Draymond's amazing. I mean, he just, um, he he literally can guard anybody in the league, Um, from Dwight Howard to Schroeder to, you know, everybody else in between. You are Locked on Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. And I wanted to give Coach Kerr the first word on this because I thought his first answer to a question tonight post-game was a great synopsis of what made Draymond Green's end sequence so special, and that was the defining moment of this win over the Atlanta Hawks. And to talk with me about it is Adam Lordson, who runs the San Jose Mercury News' Fast Break blog, of a fellow lawyer, though I'm not a lawyer anymore. He still is, um, but also somebody who knows this team inside and out. So we had a fun about a half hour conversation about what happened tonight. And then also this episode is brought to you by SeatGeek. You can use the free SeatGeek app. You download it, then you use the promo code LO Warriors to get $20 off your first order. So you just download the app. Hello, Warriors, and then you get $20 off your first order. Conversation, as I said, runs about half an hour, and I, I really enjoyed it. Thought Adam that I had a good perspective on what happened tonight. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. This was a very weird game in the sense that the Warriors didn't play well throughout, and so I was kind of figuring out what the angle would be to talk about it on the podcast, and then thank you to Draymond Green for providing that angle in the last minute of this game. <laughs> yeah, you and I both go through the same process as we're watching games. We're thinking about, okay, what's the story going to be here? What are we going to talk about? And my thought until the Draymond closing performance was we actually got to watch the Warriors deal with a little bit of adversity. It was the first time I think they'd been down at the start of the fourth quarter since the loss to the Lakers by my count uh, in games. So, you know, we got to see how they handled it. And there were some good parts of the fourth quarter. There were some bad parts of the fourth quarter. They uh, good had zero turnovers. Bad, I think they were one for ten from three point range. Uh, you know, some somewhere around that in the fourth quarter. So they weren't scoring from the outside. 
but then they really just had a closing instinct. Draymond took over. The Hawks made some mistakes down the stretch, uh, and that became the story of the game. I think the bad defense that Curry played overall on Schroeder, and there are some reasons for that, is was going to be one of the big stories of this game, and it certainly still should be, but it was in some ways amplified by how well Draymond played him on the, I guess it was technically the third to last possession of the game. Yeah, and it's a combination of not only just the great individual defense once Draymond's guarding him, but also the Warriors recognizing that that's where the Hawks are going to go and putting Draymond in a position where he can defend them. Uh, you know, a lot of that rotation and adjustment to put Draymond on the ball happens uh, before sort of the fantastic play that we see, but is just as important. Uh, the Warriors know that they have some defensive weak spots, but they found a way to adjust and to really put their best defender on the ball in the closing moments. So it, it's got to be encouraging for them. Uh, other teams, I think, may have exploited it better than the Hawks did. They Their ball movement sort of broke down at the end of the game. Uh, but definitely encouraging for Draymond to have such an impactful performance at the end. I was talking after the game with, with Marcus Thompson, talented writer, of course, and he brought up the point, which is completely true, that Curry struggles sometimes. His biggest defensive flaws are against fast point guards because I think he's cognizant of the advantage that they have. And so in this game, he was f- basically trying to force him baseline. Just the problem was that they didn't have the same kind of help defense. And Curry's going to have those kind of nights. Like that's that's not the biggest thing in the world. He did end up having a having a nice scoring night, and he actually made the only three pointer they made in that fourth quarter, which actually ended up being important at the time. It put them up, I think it was seven or eight, and you're kind of sitting there going, "Oh, okay, it's over." And then the the Hawks brought it back again. But Curry, he he's going to have that, and we did see Kerr go to Clay Thompson guarding Schroeder a little bit later on in the game, and. There aren't going to be that many matchups that cause that that basically you can't make it work between the two of them. And the Hawks don't have enough offensively to really kill you otherwise. But that combination, along with another thing we'll talk about in a second, made it a closer game than I expected it to be considering Atlanta played last night in L.A. Yeah, I think it was closer than we all expected it to be. Uh, But it's fun to watch her try to adjust and to to compensate for the fast point guard that Curry's going to have to guard. I mean, you mentioned the Thompson uh, switch. I also thought that Kerr going to McGee fairly early in both the first and second halves was uh, a way to try to provide a bit more of that help defense, some rim protection. So if Curry does get beaten off the dribble, there's another layer of defense there. And he had big success there. There's some, some good moments and some mistakes as well. But that's really what this first half of the season is going to be for uh, for Kerr and for the Warriors to encounter these different situations, to figure out what resources and tools you can deploy and to figure out a way to get it done. And thankfully, they found a way to get it done tonight. The Hawks are a specifically bad matchup for Curry, but they also are for Pachulia because he's, I, I don't believe in him that much as a help defender. He's worse in pick and roll. Like that's by far the biggest thing. And the Hawks ran and ran that a little bit as well. But also because when you leave, when you go to help, Dwight Howard is there and Schroeder did a great job in this game, better than I've seen from him maybe ever at using that help to create shots for Dwight, which is something that he can do as a point guard, that those opportunities are just going to be available because you're forcing the same individual to make a choice. Yeah, it feels like the Hawks are still getting used to having Dwight as a resource there, that they don't quite, they're not totally quite comfortable with what he can do and how to actualize him yet. 
because it looked like you know, Schroeder was having great success in getting those open looks for him. Uh, but then they went away from it, uh, and they didn't really find those opportunities as much. So it'll be interesting to watch this team develop. Millsap still doesn't look like his usual self. Uh, Baysmore had an awful game. Uh, Corver's sort of fading as a presence. So uh, they, they look like a team in flux, and I'm curious to see where they go. The ghost of Kyle Corver was disturbing and depressing in this game because he just not only was he missing shots I've seen him make for his entire career, but he just wasn't active really on the defensive end. And though the whole thing is it happens, you know, when guys get a little bit older, I'm a little bit worried now about Reddick in a couple of years, but Corver, he just didn't look like himself. That was an issue. But the the thing that I wanted, I alluded to this before, but I wanted to talk about, which is important in this game is that. Both teams turn the ball over a lot, and that is a hallmark of the Hawks. They force a ton of turnovers, and due to their offensive personnel, they commit a lot of turnovers. So in the first three quarters, Atlanta and the Warriors both had 14, which is a lot for three quarters. I think the Warriors had, was it something like nine or 10 in the first half, I believe. And what that was, so that's one thing, but the the Hawks had 19 points off those 14 turnovers, and the Warriors only had 10. And part of that is because the Warriors had only four steals. So that's four live ball turnovers by the Hawks, whereas the Hawks generated 11. And those are way easier to score on because that's what gets you a fast break look. Yeah. And that's really where the fourth quarter, where I was most encouraged by the Warriors performance, the Hawks had gummed up their offense the entire night up until that point. Exactly the statistics that you pointed out with the steals and just really frustrating their efforts at ball movement. The Warriors found a way in the fourth quarter to, one, protect the ball, have no turnovers, uh, but two, still get some decent high-quality looks, particularly on penetration. Curry was going to the basket. Durant was going to the basket. Uh, Thompson had an offensive rebound and a putback, which I can't remember the last time that happened. Uh, they were doing what they needed to do, even if they weren't clicking in their usual flow offense. And it's good to encounter teams like this that sort of knock you off your game, sort of punch you in the face and force you to really collect yourself and adjust. Uh, the Hawks really don't have that much firepower, but defensively, I still think it's a good test to put the Warriors through at this point in the season. It was also notable the fourth quarter because the Warriors got into the bonus. It's something that doesn't happen a whole lot. There weren't many shooting fouls early. It was just reaches and things like that. I think there was at least one push on a rebound. And the Warriors then used that to get into the to get into the bonus, and very few of their shots, Clay got the and one, but I think that was the only one of their free throws that was actually a shooting foul. It was just that since they were in the bonus, Durant got pushed on a rebound, Curry got pushed on a rebound, that was maybe a little bit of a shaky call, and then I, I can't remember what the other foul on Curry was, but that getting into the bonus gave them a few points, and in this game, a few points helped. Yeah, and I give them credit for being physical enough against this team to draw those fouls and put themselves in that position. Yeah, They were frustrated earlier in the night, I think, feeling like they weren't getting the calls, but they didn't shy away from it. They, they stuck their nose in there, they kept with it, and it paid off in the fourth quarter. And I liked your point about facing a team that gets you off your game because the Warriors have been able to win a lot of these games in the last 11 that were more them exerting their will and whether they brought the effort every second, like I'm thinking about the Pelicans game and the Mavericks game in particular, where they waxed and waned, but they still kind of had control of it. This was a game 
for large portions that the Hawks were not only the better team, but seemed to be dictating tempo and just the way the action went. I would say the first quarter was not that way. The first quarter, the Warriors played well and missed some looks they usually make. But overall, the Hawks made a major imprint on this one. Yeah, you you just look at the box score going into the fourth quarter. Uh, the Warriors had scored 80 points uh, after 36 minutes. Yeah, they were doing that in a half or under a half uh, the prior week. So it definitely wasn't the Warriors' preferred pace. And they need to adjust to games like this. The playoffs are going to look more like this than the give-me games that they have against the Lakers or the Pelicans or the Mavericks. Uh, so we're entering a stretch of the season that's going to be a little bit tougher, that's going to have some better competition for the Warriors, and it'll be interesting to see how they adapt. Yeah, I'm going to do a podcast later in the week about the the scheduling. And so I, it's something I'm doing for The Athletic, and then I'm going to do for Locked on Warriors every month. And the Warriors had a huge benefit in November, particularly in terms of getting opponents on back-to-backs. That advantage evaporates in December. They actually, I think the Warriors only have three back-to-backs and their opponents only have two. So they're going to be getting more even rest games and things like that. And I don't think that was a huge factor in tonight's game. But it is certainly something that it that the Warriors in particular can use to their advantage. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to watch the Warriors' minutes through this stretch as well. Uh, Kerr has talked in the past about how he'd really like to have everyone in the low 30s for their minutes. But you look at the box score tonight, Green played 39 minutes, Durant played 36, Curry 38, Thompson 37. That's about as high as you're going to see those four players in their minute counts uh, in games early in the season. Uh, So I'll be curious to see if Kerr tries to dial those minutes back as they get into a more aggressive schedule, less breaks like they've had leading up to this month. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. And take a quick second. Both of us were were at the game tonight, experienced that live. It's something that I highly encourage anybody, if you're an NBA fan in particular, but a Warriors fan listening to this, to to make the experience to do. And a great way to do that is via SeatGeek. SeatGeek is an amazing app that aggregates ticket listings from all over the internet and puts them all in one place. And if you're somebody who's familiar with Oracle, you can use that and make your own determinations. But SeatGeek also has a deal score. And what deal score tries to do is combine their own analysis of what are good seats with the pricing. And what struck me, I was in, I've, I've told the story before, but I was in the ticket business for years and I did a lot of Bay Area stuff, though I did all over the country and even around the world. And I have a lot of confidence in my own ability to pick tickets. I, it's some, I, I know these arenas. I've been to a lot of them for years. And what I found about SeatGeek when I started fiddling with it was I ended up agreeing with their deal score an overwhelming majority of the time. And so that tells you about the thought and the technology that's in it. And part of the reason why I love SeatGeek in, in terms of this podcast is that you can go and use the promo code LO Warriors, And what you get is you get $20 off your first order. So you can try out the app. You go to, you download the free app, you go to the settings page, and then there's an inner promo code. And then you, you put in the promo code. And then whenever you make an order, whether it's for a Warriors game or a concert, there are a lot of good concerts coming up in the Bay area or wherever else you are around Christmas and the holidays, you can check that out. And then once you've done it, you use the promo code and you'll get, you'll just get $20 back off your first order. And 
that means you try out something that I think you'll really like. I again, I I support sponsors that are products I legitimately enjoy, and I'm only going to tell you that when it's true. I've used SeatGeek for years, and so you get that product, you get to try it out, see if you like it, and you get twenty free dollars. And not only that, but you get to tell them that you came from us. Hopefully, that means they will advertise with us in the future. Again, you download the SeatGeek app. Promo code is LO Warriors for Locked On Warriors, and then you can get $20 off. Hope you try it out. Hope you love it. Whatever kind of event you want to do, NBA or anything else, you can move forward. And it, it's going to be a, a fun run for the Warriors Live. There are another another three home games on this stretch. That would be a good time to use it, but you can, of course, look for something later in the season. Yeah, the, the fun thing I observed may not have come across on TV, uh, Draymond's blocks, of course, and his dance after one of the blocks and celebration was great. Uh, but Draymond was fired up all fourth quarter. Uh, he was over on the bench during the Warriors' uh, run there early in the fourth quarter, really you know, working the guys, being vocal, being a leader. So you, you could tell that whatever clicked for him, this was a game where he felt like he could make an impact and he was really on the guys to, to give top intensity and to make a difference. Yeah, uh, so it's I, always I saw- fun to be in the building and watch that stuff. Yeah, it was also fun to see Durant. Get, Durant got super excited by Ian Clark's buzzer-beating three at the end of the third quarter, which I felt at the time, and even more so kind of with the way things went, was a very important play in this game, considering the Warriors basically nearly kind of blew that sequence, and then they had five seconds, got it to Clark, and he drills that shot, got the crowd back into it, and helped them get an offensive rhythm because they had really been struggling to kind of get traction against the Hawks during that third quarter. Yeah, great play by both players, too. Durant set it up perfectly. He knew how much time he had. He advanced the ball quickly and got just close enough to Clark to get him the ball when he needed it, but not to bring too much defensive pressure or too much of a crowd to him. And then Clark, like we've seen so many times, just stepped up and, and drained it without a, any sort of second thought. Yeah, Really, his confidence is soaring, and he's making big shots like that, which is a huge boost for the bench group. I've mentioned casually before that Clark could work as a poor man's Clay Thompson. And over the course of the season, I think we're seeing it in more ways than I expected. He had a, has had a couple of big open shot threes, including that one at the end of the third quarter. But it was also true tonight, as it was in Portland, that Clark looks most comfortable defending point guards. And that's something Clay has kind of made a living doing for the Warriors back to the Mark Jackson days. Depends on the matchup, depends on the scheme. But if Clark can kind of dance into that role, it could really be useful for trying some different things out, not trying to minimize Sean Livingston or anything like that. But Clark's, if he has that kind of versatility, it allows the Warriors to try some things that they wouldn't have even really considered before. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I, I may have talked about this with you before, but I love Livingston as a change of pace. He has a, a crucial role on this team. But often the fact that he is such a change of pace can be disruptive to what the Warriors are doing. So to have someone who plays a bit more like Curry, whether it's uh, his ability to sort of penetrate, uh, to stretch the defense from three, whether his defensive profile and taking smaller players, he's just a bit more of a natural fit as a backup point guard for the way that the Warriors play when Curry's in. So not at all to minimize Livingston. He has a huge, important role on this team. But the team just looks comfortable with Clark out there at point guard, particularly now when he's uh, doing a good job defensively and where there are some other ball handlers who can take the pressure off him for really distributing the basketball. It was always part of the kind of garbage time 
ethic for this team of playing McCaw and Clark at the two guard spots, but it could actually work at other points in the game if they're putting them with Durant and ideally even Durant and Iguodala. Like there, there are a couple different lineups. David West is the most logical fit there just because he and Durant have good chemistry, but I would be strongly supportive of a few minutes at some point in the next couple weeks with McCaw, Clark, Durant, Iguodala, and JaVale just to see if that works. Just a, a very different type of Warriors team because one of the things you're looking for over the course of the season is a lineup that can give you like four or five good minutes against an opponent while Curry, Draymond, and ideally Clay are all sitting. Yeah, the beauty of having Iguodala out there with Durant is that it gives you the two... Uh, creators that the Warriors seem to thrive on offensively. Uh, it's not enough to just have sort of one person you can create in the offense, but you need to be able to switch and have someone on the other side of the court make those decisions as well. Uh, and we saw that tonight. Iguodala did a fantastic job when he checked in, reigniting the ball movement for the Warriors, really making sure that the open men were getting shots, uh, having movement off the ball. Uh, and so I like the idea of sort of pairing him with one of the other uh, key offensive pieces and a guy like Clark who can be a spot up shooter, uh, but may not be the best person for initiating the offense if things stagnate. I also want to see McCaw guard ones. The McCaw, he's too young now, like he's too inexperienced to trust him in, let's say, a big moment to guard somebody like Schroeder. But eventually, that would be something that would give another creative edge that the Warriors could use. But Iguodala was central in this game, and there was a sequence in the first quarter that I, th- I think was reflective of what he can do, where on, I think it was his first two possessions in the game, he had a really nice pass to Draymond and then had kind of a reaction pass to Clay, both of which generated open looks, and the Warriors did not struggle early in this game because they were getting bad shots, they were just missing them. But getting Draymond to dunk and getting Clay a wide open above the break three really did help give give them a foundation to really build this, uh, an overall okay offensive performance out of. Yeah, the, the Warriors looked more like themselves offensively when Iguodala was in there. Uh, he was plus 18 for the night, by far the biggest plus minus. And I think a lot of that is a reflection of their ability to move the ball offensively the way that they liked to when he was in the game. The times that things bogged down and sort of became awkward offensively were the times when he was off the floor for the Warriors. And that ties in with the idea of later on connecting his minutes more with with the best players on the team because Iguodala, he amplifies a lot of that. And, and there are going to be questions. I, I tweeted it during the game that it feels like there's a chance this season is defined by two or by four or five Andre Iguodala open corner threes. I was presuming in the NBA finals, but it could be earlier. That's a possibility, <laughs> but he brings so much out of everyone else. And there, I understand why, especially in the regular season, Kerr wants to bring him off the bench, be kind of a change of pace, tone setter. It's weird to have a tone setter be your first sub, but it makes sense with this team. It was totally true last year. I think Ethan Strauss calls it the Andre Fix-It t- situation that actually happened in this game. But yep. when, you, when the rubber meets the road and you need your best lineups out there as much as possible, those are going to involve a good all more often than not. And that's another reason why they should kind of try these ambitious ideas to see what non-Iguodala lineups can work with kind of more bench-heavy units because one of the ideals for the Warriors in, the let's say, the conference finals and the finals would be to play Iguodala almost exclusively with the starters. Yeah, and I like Iguodala with the starters because it almost makes him 
aggressive isn't quite the word because he's aggressive with the bench, but he feels just more like a complete natural player uh, when he's with the starters. He has a a more natural sense of when to pass or when to shoot. Uh, It's not in some of those awkward situations where you feel like he should be shooting and he's not or vice versa. Everything just seems to flow better when he's out there with more of the starters. And we see that at the end of the games. Uh, Kerr really likes to have that same closing five, uh, you know, the former death lineup or the variation on it. Uh, And they play so well together, so cohesively, largely because Iguodala is such a glue guy in that lineup. Part of that might also be Iguodala is such a smart basketball player that he has confidence in the best players on the team. So like when he makes that pass to Clay Thompson above the break, he knows that whether it goes in or not, that's the right basketball play. There's there's no hesitation there. But making that same pass to Patrick McCaw is a different thing. It's it's not the same part of the process. And this the second unit guys, like even not if it's full second unit, but with West and everybody else, they haven't fully realized or actualized how to capitalize on the looks that are created. And so for Iguodala, you know, he had that that moment where he had the nice behind the back dribble and then did the layup. But I, I'm sure he hesitated for a second, like, is this really the right move? But he's like, ah, what, what else are we going to do here? And with the starters, he does have those three-point hesitations. There was the one today where he basically took a beat and waited, like, should I really shoot this? And then did. I genuinely cannot remember whether that particular shot went in. But he gets to be more of what makes him special with those units, even if he provides more value outside of it. Yeah, and I would rather have an aggressive Iguodala that is missing occasional threes rather than a tentative one uh, who is hesitating, who's not clicking on all cylinders. Uh, I'll definitely take the the bad with the good when it comes to Iguodala playing uh, sort of all out in in the offense and defensively. It is incredible how rarely he turns the ball over when you consider he has a a fair amount of touches, but he is very judicious about it. And, you know, sometimes turnovers can be a good thing. It really does depend on what nature of them. It's not like a curry behind the back pass in the half court. That is not a good turnover. But there are ones where you're, you know, you have the right idea and the ball just, you know, it slides out of the guy's hand or defender makes an amazing play. So it's not always like, oh my God, I mean, but, but then when you look at it, the guys who have the best assisted turnover ratios are almost always some of the best players in the league. Like Chris Paul is at one point this year, Chris Paul was over four. Yeah, the thing with Iguodala that blows me away is his patience. If you look at the times when the Warriors score a clock, very often it's off of an Iguodala. It's a time where he was waiting for something to develop, where he wanted the guys to move off the ball more, and he picks his spots so judiciously uh, that I think that's part of the reason why he has such a great assist-to-turnover ratio. He's not forcing things early. He's not looking for some ashy play uh, that's unnecessary. He knows everything that's going on on the court, and he's picking his spots and waiting for the right moment to move the ball. So I just looked it up, and Iguodala, small sample size, you know, 17 games, he has the lowest turnover rate of his entire career, and that's all his percentage of possession, so it's not, you know, he's playing a smaller role, everything like that. And he has the highest assist rate of his Warriors tenure, not of his career, because he had those really high usage years in Philly and in that one season in Denver. So that that is kind of a testament that confirms that he's still as active in the offense as he, as he was before, but being more efficient about it. Yeah, the efficiency stats for all the Warriors are just going to break the scale this year. Uh, I'm yeah. sure you've talked about Durant's efficiency before, but I think we're going to see the carryover for that. 
uh, with players like Iguodala, like you just mentioned, that this system offensively is so potent that their efficiency is just going to be off the charts. I mentioned this uh, with Eric Malinowski. I had him on last week, and we were talking about Iguodala. And I, I, I mentioned in passing that he's basically become a Mori ball player. But when you look at it, it his shot distribution it really is. He, this year, right now, his he, 48% of his shot attempts are from three, and then another 35% are, from, are, are in the restricted area. So he's become that kind of a guy, and th- you know sometimes teams can play those types of players. But when somebody's as good, like they can take advantage of that because they they know how to defend him. But Iguodala is such a good passer that you can't really play off him in those intervening spaces. Yeah, and when he's in one of those spots, it's forcing the defense to adjust in ways that's creating looks in other places. So it's just a huge dilemma, again, for defenses. Do you leave him open at three, or do you allow him to penetrate deeply, or or do you try to adjust the defense to block that? There's no good answer there, and Iguodala is the perfect player for exploiting whatever choice the defense decides to make. Is there anything else you feel like we have to discuss from this game? I feel like we got to talk about Draymond a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it at the beginning. It, it was sort of the late uh, arrival of a storyline for the game, but it, it was a classic Draymond just willing the team to victory defensive performance. Uh, you know, we've seen it for years now where he's a, a completely dominant defender for bigger players, smaller players. Uh, but teams still go at him. They still think that they can beat him one-on-one, and he just destroys them time and time again. It was a perfect case of it tonight. It was fun to watch. The NBA Sport View data, now one of the categories, it actually comes out about an hour after each game. Is So they do player tracking, but then an offshoot of player tracking is hustle stats. And so it's using the cameras to model things that, that we're kind of already seeing. And Draymond consistently leads the team in deflections. He led the game in deflections today with five. But the stat that just made my eyes pop out of my skull is that he was credited with 25 shot contests in this game. 25 is a ridiculous amount. Usually you see a a game high, like even within Draymond, it's usually in the 15 to 18 range. Today, the highest other than him was Millsap with 12. And, you know, of course, the last three shots of the game were three of those. Coach Kerr talked about the, the Millsap three gets a little bit lost in the shuffle because... It what the game was basically already decided at that point, but the Bazemore block, Schroeder block, both incredible. And I, I feel like Draymond should just he should just post the link to the hustle stats as just being like his Twitter bio or something like that because it always shows something and it gets into the idea that there is always more to defense and all that 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 we're never going to be able to quantify. You know, the, the that Schroeder possession, if he hadn't gotten the block and it just made the shot really hard, that would have been something that would have been lost in the box score to that degree. And the Baysmore one, you know, maybe that was more of a steal than a block. Doesn't really matter. But he brings that kind of an effort consistently. And the Hawks represent a really tough matchup for him because they have strong offensive rebounders. They have some versatile players. It's not quite like Horford. And he did well. It wasn't as obvious throughout the game. I include myself in that group. Like I didn't sit there going, wow, Draymond's contesting a lot of shots during this game. But when you see 25, it's incredible. Yeah. And just the versatility, I mean, just in your explanation there, it's three different players on the final three He's guarding Schroeder and blocking him at the rim. He's blocking Baysmore on penetration. He's taking Millsap out at the three. Uh, it's just there's probably only one, maybe two other players in the league who could dream of having that sort of defensive impact. Uh, so it's something that gets overlooked frequently. Draymond deserves even more credit than he already receives. Uh, because it's a pretty spectacular combination of skills and effort that he's putting together on the defensive end. 
not on the Draymond point, but on the defense point, I, th- I feel like we should also mention that Dwight Howard had a very good game and the Warriors are still spooked by him. It's It stems back. They faced Dwight in multiple playoff series over the last few years. And you would see them changing the shots when they saw him coming. And Dwight is still great. You know, he's having a wonderful year for the Hawks, especially defensively. And it is in some ways, it's fortunate for the Warriors that he's in the other conference because Gobert is the same way. Like, they're a little bit spooked by him. But those true, you know, defensive centers still have a value in terms of getting guys to rethink their shots. Yeah, you saw the Curry layups were going higher off the glass. There were a couple other players who pulled up rather than penetrate. Uh, definitely having an impact. I-, I thought the Hawks could have gone to a more on offense, too. I think that the Warriors, whether it's Zaza or whether it's going small, really didn't have an answer for him uh, around the ball up there and letting him do something with it. Uh, the Hawks did it a little bit early, but they went away from it late. Uh, I think that w- with the centers that you mentioned, sort of those big athletic centers, that's always going to be a risk for this Warriors team. They also could have used that to get into the bonus more often and to get in quickly. And when, when you have an offense that has a propensity to sputter like the Hawks, defense, uh, the Hawks offense does, that can help bring you stability as it did for the Warriors in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I, this is a Hawks team that I think will be better in two months than it is right now. They, they look like they're still figuring stuff out, but they have a great coach. They have some heady players. I think they'll get there. Yeah, and it was. it's nice that Bud, Budenholzer is comfortable using players in the right circumstance. So I was sitting there kind of wondering, oh, it's like it was It was notable that Tabo Seflosha was in late in the game instead of Bazemore. Nate Duncan, who I was sitting next to, pointed out that Bazemore had five fouls. He also wasn't playing that well. But Tabo is a much better matchup against Durant. He's bigger, he's more stout, and you don't really want both of them on the floor together because even if Corver isn't making those shots he's still a threat and he's affecting the he's affecting the opposing defense and that takes some guts you know there are a lot of coaches that wouldn't do that because Bazemore just got a bunch of money he's a very good teammate former warrior but that takes you know that that's not something that every coach can do a month into the season with one of their higher paid guys who a big part of the reason he's on your team is his defense yeah, the Spurs system has been implemented in Atlanta. There's no team. I'm sure that their coach has passed down that idea. So, you know, and Baysmore's always been such a good teammate. He would never make a big deal out of that. But you're right. You know, the, the assets are going to be deployed in the right way. It's just a question of getting everybody comfortable with one another and getting uh, you know, them clicking on a, a collective whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. Thank you so much for taking the time. Always good to talk with you. Yep, always great to be on. Have a good night. Thanks again to Adam Wurtson for taking the time to come on late at night. You can read him at Fast Break. It's the San Jose Mercury News Warriors fan blog. So you go to blogs.mercurynews.com slash warriors. And you can also follow him on Twitter at GSWFastBreak. That's G-S-W-F-A-S-T-B-R-E-A-K. And with the Warriors not playing another game until Thursday. Going to have a couple of episodes to do some different things. I already know what one of them is going to be, and that is the episode that will air on December 1st is going to be the November recap, both in terms of scheduling and four factors. I'm thinking those make sense to do together because both is probably about a 15 to 20 minute segment. So if you put them together, that's a good little solid episode. And then the other one, I'm, I'm still working on what it, what exactly it's going to be. So you can definitely check that out. You can also check out my work for The Athletic. 
going to do just like usual game analysis and player analysis. Game analysis will be up earlier in the morning on Tuesday. Player analysis will be a little bit later in the day. I try to submit it around 10, so it usually gets up around noon. And going to incorporate some audio, including the one that you heard at the beginning of this podcast and some other stuff. Kurt had some good good stuff, and I actually asked him about Patrick McCaw and Ian Clark. I will use that on The Athletic. It didn't really have a place to fit into this podcast, so it will be in there. If you want to give any information, if your input on the show, good, bad, indifferent, you can reach out to me, MBA at gmail.com, at DanielLaRue on Twitter, L-E-R-O-U-X. And I do appreciate it. And if you want to support the show, lots of things you can do. You can subscribe, download every episode, leave a rating, leave a review in whatever podcast player you like. It's great if it's iTunes, fine if it isn't. And also you can check out SeatGeek. SeatGeek is a great app for tickets, whether it's Warriors, other stuff around the country, a lot of concerts in the Bay Area. I know Bruno Mars is coming in February. They promoted it at the Warriors today and lots of other stuff going on. So you can use it for that. And by using the code LOWARRIORS on the free SeatGeek app, you get $20 off your first order. So you get to try out something that I personally use and enjoy quite a bit, and you get $20 off and you tell them they came from us. So it's definitely a win-win in that sort of circumstance. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. San Jose Sharks hockey is back, and we've got you covered five days a week at Locked On Sharks. I'm Kyle Demetrius. I'm J.D. Young. I'm Eric Fowl. Together we make sure you're never without your Sharks programming. Will the Sharks make a trade for a right winger? We got you covered. Will Eric Carlson's groin hold up for the entire season? We've got you covered. Whatever happens with Team Teal every day, we've got you covered at Locked On Sharks five days a week on the Locked On Podcast Network. This is Josh Lloyd, the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, the number one fantasy basketball podcast in the world. If you're looking for information regarding fantasy basketball, recaps of the NBA, this is the show for you. We are heading into the offseason and starting to get ready for the 2020-2021 fantasy season. We'll have all the information on what happens through the rest of the playoffs, free agency, the NBA draft, and then heading into a big 2021 season. So make sure you're checking out the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast.